Good morning. Uh, today we're going to be continuing uh, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, looking at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which has brought us to Jesus' words regarding adultery, lust, and sexual immorality. Um, this can be a difficult topic to discuss, particularly in public, but um, I take heart that Jesus himself did it uh, at a time when it would have still been difficult, and he had a way of doing it with respect, but also with intent. There were serious things that he needed his followers to know, and so our goal this morning, my goal this morning as we go through these, this passage is to have that same respect and intention to understand what he wants from us um, yet still keep it something that we're able to talk about in in the public setting. So with that, um, let me pray for us, and we'll go in. God, thank you that we are precious to you, and you care about us. You care about what we think about ourselves, what we think about others, what we think about our bodies, the choices that we make. And thank you that your son took time when he was here on earth to give us a guide a a, a way to look, a way to think about things um, that we can study and understand and apply here now 2,000 years later. Help us this morning all to be humble before your word, to understand what you have in it for for us, and to put that into action. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been going through the Sermon uh, on the Mount this time, as many of you know, Shannon has uh, called us again and again to think about this being about God's kingdom, that this was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is, pushing people to think about and understand. And I, some of you know, actually lived in Japan for four years, where I sadly learned very, very little Japanese. Um, But I did learn this word, uh, and this is the word kingdom. And if you're familiar with uh, image um, or ideogram-based languages, you know that these images are made up of component images which tell the story of how the word came to be. And so kingdom, if you look, there's the box, and that is land. Um, and then you have that like super T where it's like a cross and a line and then a line in the middle and then a line on the bottom. That's a ruler, a king, a queen. And then finally there's a little dot, and the little dot is a gem. And that centerpiece, the ruler with the gem, is actually the Japanese and Chinese word for precious. What the king holds in his hand is precious. And a kingdom could be understood then to be the land where the Lord keeps what he thinks is precious. And as we look at this topic this morning of lust, I want you to hold that in mind, that this is not a sermon, a teaching that Jesus gave about what to say no to, but about what he wanted to keep precious, what was precious, if nothing else, to him. Remember a few weeks back we were talking about, Jesus said, you know, you are the light of the world, salt of the earth, you're important to God. He went right from there into, you can block that, you can prevent that light from coming out, and from that into, keep the law, and from keep the law into these six passages, anger, lust, and those that are to come. And so it is about us remaining that, that precious thing that God keeps in his kingdom. Um, and so with that, that brings us to the core verse uh, for this morning, uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 27 to 30. This is Jesus talking. He said, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So, sticking with this idea that Jesus' words were about the kingdom protecting what is precious, I want to, over the course of the next few minutes, few minutes, um, look at preciousness from three different uh, ways. We're going to identify what's precious, talk about how to defend what is precious, and then finally cherish what is precious. Um, but for part one, part one, yes, identify what is precious. Um, and Jesus talks about adultery. Jesus talks about, um, well, he first talks about adultery, and we're going to start there. And adultery, just so that we're all understanding what I believe Jesus meant, is not merely if there's a husband and a wife, and one of them goes off and has sex with someone else, but it would be anyone who has sex with someone who is not their spouse that God gave them. And um, so that's what he's talking about uh, when he talks about adultery. And when we talk about what is precious, um, we should understand that God thinks that marriage is precious. God thinks that marriage is sacred. Jesus is going to say further on in Matthew, uh, verse 19, or sorry, chapter 19, um, Jesus said, haven't you read, uh, he replied, that is Jesus, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God loves marriage. God wants marriage to be sacred, holy, precious, between the man and the woman that he brings together. And he brings them together as one. And that one includes them, their oneness includes sex, just for the two of them, in their bed. And so the marriage bed, it too, is precious. So it follows that adultery is a sin. Um, and adultery, beyond just being a sin, has numerous negative consequences for life, right? I mean, it, it hurts the people who, who do that. It breaks trust between married couples. It can have a negative effect on, on, on a community. Um, those of you who remember uh, the story of King David, King David who, had a, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was the f- wife of his friend Uriah, it, didn't just, it wasn't just an episode of adultery that occurred and ended and then back to normal. It ruined his relationship with Uriah. He ended up betraying and killing Uriah to keep that adultery a secret. So adultery is, is awful. It hurts people left and right. And even today, in our modern era that's enlightened and free-thinking, adultery is not popular. <laughs> it is still the, one of the top reasons listed for uh, divorce. Um, and even, you know, at work, those of us who are working out in just the world, you hear people you hear someone, talking about someone cheating. It's still not celebrated. It's, and so from Jesus' time to now, adultery is bad, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He then goes on to lust, that lust itself was a bad thing. He doesn't stop at the obvious that has uh, real world, so to speak, uh, implications, real world as in the physical world. Um, but there was another real world problem uh, in our mind uh, when we um, look at lust. And so there is then the question, so what's, what's, what's bad about lust? And I did a little digging this week, like why lust is considered bad. And some have put forward the idea that lust is bad because it leads to adultery. 
that what begins in your mind plays out. Once again, King David, he first saw Bathsheba, and then he took Bathsheba. So if the lust had never happened, the adultery wouldn't have happened either. And that's, there's truth to that, that lust leads to adultery, therefore lust is dangerous. But I think Jesus means more. I've also heard people talk about or say that lust is bad because it changes the way you treat the person that you have lust towards. And that is also true. You know, last week Shannon was talking about anger, and he shared the thought um, that anything you can do with anger, you can do better without. And that's true of lust as well, that you may know someone who would be otherwise a delightful person to know, a beautiful relationship to have, but then lust enters and it spoils that relationship. And if you live free of lust, then you can have much healthier relationships with those around you. So it's true. There is truth to that, that our lives without lust are better. But I think Jesus still means more. That he's saying, when you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. And that Jesus is drawing his listeners' attention to this matter of the heart. What's going on in your heart? You know, in our society, we we have places, all of us have places that we consider sacred. Many of us consider this building that we're in right now sacred. Many of us consider our bedrooms sacred. Or our place in the house that's just for us, a garage or a workshop or the backyard or, you know, to all of us there are places that are precious and sacred. And I believe that what Jesus is saying to his listeners is your heart, your mind is his sacred space. That if we were to have a hypothetical of a monk somewhere up in the mountains who stumbled across a pornographic image from 50 years ago and just looked at it, the the model, the person in the picture may not even be alive anymore. He's never going to meet her. He's never going to do anything about it except look at it. Jesus would look and say, that right there has tarnished the sacred space of his mind, of his heart. What we think about ourselves, what we think about people is exactly where Jesus wants to be in our life, whether it leads to action or not. Um, Paul wrote in Philippians um, chapter 4, verse 8. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things that in our minds there is a sanctuary like this one of great and wonderful thoughts given by God. And anything that invades is unwelcome in that sanctuary. We are that precious sacred space in God's kingdom, our minds and our hearts. So, we've identified what's precious. Now it's time to protect it. Um, So, part two, defend what is precious at any cost, whatever the cost. Um, Back to the verse, uh, Jesus said, if your right eye, that is your good eye, causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Big words from Jesus. I can kind of picture that that hillside 2,000 years ago, people sitting up straight, like leaning in, like, what did he say? Um, Did I hear that right? And so what is Jesus saying? Is this literal? Is this figurative? Is it hyperbole? Does he mean us to really do this? Um, 
First of all, no, I don't believe that Jesus really wants us to do this for two reasons. One, none of his followers ever did. And if you look at their lives, their obedience was radical. They gave up their lives, they gave up their riches, they gave up their positions, they gave up all these things in their life. And so if Jesus had meant for them to actually maim and mutilate themselves in the sake of holiness, I think they would have. But it didn't happen. It doesn't happen in the Gospels. It doesn't happen in the early church. So we need to understand that Jesus is saying something else. Um, and I looked at some stuff. People saying, is it, is it literal? Is it figurative? Some people are like, it's strongly literal, but there's a little in, uh, point of, of interpretation we'll talk about in a second. Some of it's very figurative. I think the distinction might even be misleading, that Jesus means something very serious, and that Jesus can say things that mean something on one level and then another level. And so what we want to do is, if, if, you, if you are familiar with like those exploded view uh, diagrams of like parts from like your dishwasher or something, they have that one page like a diagram that blows it up, and then it brings it back together. We're going to take a little bit of time with Jesus' words about eyes and hands and, and self-mutilation and, and get at what exactly is he saying, uh, or what can, could he be saying, and then put it back together so we can use it. Um, so I do think there's a way to take Jesus literally here which is that he literally means if your eye causes you to sin or your hand causes you to sin, then get rid of that. However, your eye and your hand have never made you do anything. You make your eye do something. You make your hand do something. So it's really about you, about your choices, your will, your decisions of taking yourself into situations of sin or, in, um, or entertaining sinful thoughts or going into uh, places that tempt you, letting that live in your mind, or not. It's never your eye's fault what you're looking at. In fact, I realized this week when I was preparing that the only thing your eye can force you to do is squint if you try to look at the sun. <laughs> it's only accident in life that's its own protects you. Um, but it's you. It's us. It's our own heart. Jesus will say later in Matthew uh, 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Very familiar list to what he's going through right here on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not your hand and it's not your eye. It is your heart. Yet, there is a severity to that, that Jesus is calling, himself, calling his followers to understand. And it's similar to, I don't know if, how many of you remember, there was a true story of a rock climber. They made it into a movie 127 hours where his, his hand got stuck while he was rock climbing alone. And he, to save his life, cut his arm off and went down from that mountain. That story, again, man cuts off arm to save the rest of his body. And that's the severity, the seriousness that Jesus is calling his listeners to understand. If your life depended on losing a hand, you would lose the hand. Doctors do it. They, they amputate people every day to protect the rest of the body from what would happen if that disease, you know, diabetes or whatever, continued to grow. So it's not a literal removal of the hand because your hand doesn't make you lust. Not a literal removal of the eye, but it is a literal call to take this seriously, deadly seriously. But I also think there is an aspect of Jesus' words which could be understood figuratively, which is that the eye calls your attention to that which you let in, and your hand calls attention to that which you do. And I think in our battle against lust and the choices that we make, we make choices of what we let in and what we do. 
We are not um, passive uh, in this battle against lust. It's with an eye that you choose what you look at and who you look at and how long you stare. With your hand, you navigate to websites or drive yourself to a place that you shouldn't be. Your choices matter. And Jesus is saying, take it seriously, very seriously, because I don't think we want to leave it completely figuratively because Jesus ends this by talking about hell. Firm, stern warning to his listeners. And again, I think there's maybe different ways to understand what Jesus is saying that might both apply. One, he could mean this just physically when he talks about burning in hell, that it's like if you look at something long enough, it can awaken a temptation in you that will make your body feel like it's burning with passion that you can't uh, resist. So maybe he doesn't mean it, he does mean it physically, to not let yourself be tempted to the point of burning. But he also, I think, very much means it spiritually, that unrepentant lust, any unrepentant sin, leads to spiritual death a permanent separation from God in eternity. So yeah, even something as small as one look could, in an unrepentant life, take a person to hell. As disproportional as that might seem. Remember back in the passage before, uh, Jesus was talking about um, keeping every aspect of the law. But there is repentance and there is forgiveness. I don't mean to leave us in that hole, but Jesus is calling his listener, take this seriously. Last thing about this exploded view uh, is that Jesus says, if your eye and your hand, and there is a call to personal accountability, you know what causes your problems. And God is calling you to take that seriously. There may be temptations that are very difficult for some and not as much for others. I think there are things that are so far out there that really would all do good to just abstain from it. Um, but ultimately, this is something that you have to take and own with God and say, what in my life needs to be different? What needs to change? What needs to go? Your right eye, your right hand, even the good eye, even the good hand, even something that might otherwise be helpful in your life might need to go. And not, yeah, not just in the sense of don't watch that movie, but even how you choose to talk to people, how you choose to engage with people, how you choose to present yourself um, you know, in the workplace, watching your speech for flirting. Like, there's so many different ways that we make choices that just, just step over the line. Um, so now, let's bring it back together. Um, God wants us to engage in this fight with him, this, this fight to keep ourselves precious, his precious gems in his kingdom, um, and there's a few tools that he's given us uh, that he wants us to engage with. And, and one is self-control. Uh, a few verses from uh, very, very far apart sections of the Bible. <laughs> in Job, very, very old book of the Bible that you probably haven't read in maybe ever. Uh, <laughs> except for those who threw the Bible in a year. If you did through the Bible in the year and you read the Old Testament sections, then you read Job. Um, but Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? So here's Job making a decision, a covenant, reckoning to himself. When he looks at someone, he will choose to look at them the way God wants him to look at them and not the way his flesh, his sinful nature might tempt him to. And then in 2 Timothy 2.22, plethora of twos, um, Paul wrote to his uh, disciple Timothy, Now flee 
from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace uh, with those who call on the name uh, on the Lord from a pure heart. So choose what you do. And I know that sounds kind of basic, maybe too simple, um, but it is in a way. that. But it, it's a reminder too, you know, we, we, we sang this morning, um, you know, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, that God has given us the power, the strength in his Holy Spirit to make holy choices. You know, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, some of us know well, is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That the Holy Spirit gives us the power to be these people that, that God wants us to be. And he gave that power to Job, and he gave that power to Timothy, or it was available to them. And it's available to us, too, to actually just say, no, sin, I'm not going to do this your way. Um, But I think there's a little bit more. And both of these verses actually hint at it, because Job has a covenant, but then he goes on to say that he, he looks at what God has given him. And you look at the verse, Timothy Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. That there is in both of these verses and in many verses a call not just to say no to things, but then to run toward what God has given you. Um, so not just saying no to sin, but yes to righteousness. Um, and that leads us to part three, which is to cherish what is precious, which is us and our mind, and our heart, and what we think about others. Um, to cherish the things that God has given us to enjoy, uh, rather than be consumed for a longing uh, for what we don't have. Um, so Jesus, as we recall, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, told his people, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Keep following. Later on, minutes later for those people on the hillside that, that day, a few weeks from us, for, uh, a few weeks from now, for us, Jesus is going to talk about all that God provides you. You know, pray for your daily bread. Ask, and it will be given. He's a good, good father who loves us, and he gives you what you need. Um, There's an entire section Jesus is talking about when you look at the the, um, flowers in the field, the birds in the air. God takes care of them. God takes care of you. So this Sermon on the Mount is, is... not just a list of don'ts, but, a list of, but also a list of what to embrace and what to be grateful for. Um, what we can be satisfied with, not just what we're supposed to like, give up. Um, so I mentioned David and Bathsheba earlier, a story that you know well, and I want to go back and look at it. I know it's familiar to many of you, um, but look at it, not verse by verse, because we're running out of time, but choice by choice. David's choices, and I want to note, one, his failure of self-control, his failure to make the righteous, righteous choice, but also his turning his back on what God had given him instead. Um, so the story is in 2 Samuel, but I've, we're going to pull out just a couple, uh, a couple things here. Um, that David's story, yes, awesome. If you remember, uh, David uh, stayed home when his armies went off to war. That's the first line of the story. That it, was the, it was the springtime when kings went to war and David was home. 
He rejected his calling. And I think a lot of sin actually begins not with choosing sin, but with rejecting what God wanted you to be doing anyways. Not to say, as I've heard some say, that if we're doing God's will, living out our calling, whatever mission that might be, whatever charity, whatever teaching, whatever service, that there will be no temptation. Even Jesus was tempted. But that when we are doing what God has for us to do, it protects us from many a sin and many a temptation. And so for David, the bad decision started when he rejected where God wanted him to be in the first place. Um, and then his spiral continued. He saw Bathsheba, and he didn't go downstairs. He could have just gone back in his room. He had, it's a little bit strange, but he had more than one wife that God had given him, which is like worthy of an 11 a.m., like six-week like learning lab, like, wait, how is this a blessing? But it was. It was somehow that, that God had given David more than one wife, and those were good gifts for him, but Bathsheba was not one of them. And when he saw her, he could have turned right back around, gone downstairs, tapped a servant on the, tapped a servant on the shoulder, and said, I need one of my wives. But he didn't. He sent a servant instead to find out who she was, and when he heard back, oh, that's, that's Bathsheba, that's your friend Uriah's wife. Um, he ignored his friend's dignity. He called for her anyways. He could have thought not of Bathsheba's honor, though he should have, or his honor, though he should have, or his wife's honor, though he should have, or his friend, but he ignored all of that, all these great relationships that God had given him that he could have honored with his choice. Instead, he tossed that all aside and brought her um, to his bed. And then when he got caught, well, when she became pregnant and he was afraid that he would get caught, he first tried to trick Uriah to come home from the battle and go to bed with Bathsheba himself so that when the baby was born, Uriah would think, oh, my baby. And when that failed, he instead wrote an order to send Uriah to the front lines, and then when the battle was fiercest, the rest of the platoon would withdraw and essentially condemn Uriah to death to keep his secret. So he condemned Uriah to death rather than honor his friend's life. And at every stage, he made a bad choice and also rejected something great God had given him that he could have loved instead. Notice also how closely that the heart of an adulterer and the adult of an, the heart of a murderer are. It's no mistake, I think, that Jesus began this Sermon on the Mount, these six warnings, uh, not this Sermon on the Mount, but this section talking about murder, hate, and then adultery and lust. It's the same mind. It's a mind that says, me. It's just selfishness, what I want. There's someone I can use to please myself. I'll take them. Here is someone in my way. I dispose of them. It's about me. It's turning people into objects to use how you want, whether it's to please you or they offend you. But David didn't get away with it, actually. Um, God saw, as he always does, and God sent a prophet named Nathan to oppose David. And we're going to look at, actually, their entire conversation because Nathan shares and prophesies the word of the Lord in a way that brings this home, I think, much better than, than I can. So uh, picking up here in 2 Samuel uh, 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he, that is Nathan, came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. 
He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep of cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Prophecy. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave, you, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. It's a little bit surprising to me how Nathan balances these scales. David's sin was very specific. Adultery, murder. And when Nathan comes to challenge him, when Nathan prophesies the word of the Lord, on the other side isn't just the wives he had or just the battles he had won over actual enemies because Uriah wasn't his enemy. But on the other side of the scale, Nathan places, or God places, everything that David had been given by God and the promise of more, that David's sin came out of a rejection of appreciation, of gratitude, of contentment for everything that God had given him, and a loss of faith that if more was necessary, more would be given. And that, in his heart, led to these twin sins of becoming an adulterer and then a murderer. Um, and I want to take a step back, and I want to remember David in his prime. I want to remember David in his prime. Um, yes. Uh, which is, goes all the way back to Psalm 3. Uh, David said, wrote the psalm, he said, I lay down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. David wrote this when he was on the run for his life. He was in a uh, battle for the throne, the crown with, with Saul. He was hiding in caves. There were professional soldiers, mercenaries looking to kill him. And so even to go to sleep at night was an act of faith. And so he says, I lay down and sleep, acknowledging that he's alive right now, that the very life he has came from God. I wake again, looking forward to that which God will give him because the Lord sustains me. In his prime, indestructible man of faith David understood that what he had today and what was coming tomorrow were God's gift from God, not for him to take into his own hands, but to take with gratitude and contentment and to look forward with faith and hope. And when he lost that later in life, that's when the bad decisions came. So it's it might seem strange that, you know, we're, we started talking about lust, and now we're talking about contentment, gratitude, faith, assurance that God will give you what you need. But it's a connection God himself made when Nathan confronted David. And it's a connection that I believe is there when you take the entire uh, Sermon on the Mount as a whole and you see how much Jesus told his followers, God is looking out for you. God is on your side. God is going to give you everything you need. And even in the early church, they didn't cut off limbs, 
But if someone had a struggle, Paul wrote, hey, just get married. <laughs> you, know, you know, even though it wasn't for Paul, Paul was very content. Paul, through God's power, was content to be single. You know, his, his one true love was God. His one calling was the mission. But he understood in the early church the teachings were there. If you struggle, God will provide for you, just like Nathan told um, David. If there more had been needed, more would have been given. Um, and so I want to end by going back to what Paul told us about contentment. A contentment that isn't just about not hating people or not lusting or not wanting more money or not being upset about your house or anything that we might want, but just a belief that God gives you everything you need so you need never go beyond what God has given you. And so we're back in Philippians. Remember this, we were just here. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or anything is worthy of praise, think about such things. And then he goes on. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me uh, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And he goes on. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you at last, uh, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and what it is to have plenty. I know, I, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, married or single, uh, living in plenty or in want, friends or no friends. I can do all things, all this, through him who gives me strength. And this last verse, Philippians 4.13, you might have seen it like tattooed on the ankle of an athlete or written in the binding of a Bible all by itself. And it's a fine verse all by itself. But in context, what Paul had just said is he had the power to be content. And if you read Philippians, the whole book, it's really about Paul's peace and contentment with everything God had given him, the mission he had given him, the spiritual maturity he had given him, the way things were going with the spreading of the gospel and how much money he had, all, all, all these things, Paul was content through Christ's strength. So, from here, it's kind of up to each of us Lust is a funny sin because you could go your whole life and no one will ever know. They might see little glimpses of it here and there and how you treat people that might boil over into an actual adulterous affair, but you also might get away with it, except between you and God. And he wants you to take this seriously, severely seriously. Um, but he wants you to fight it not just with self-control and being a better person, although that's good, but also with gratitude, with contentment, with a hope and a belief that he is going to provide for you everything you need um, to be that, again, that little precious person, that little precious soul that he has made you to be. Um, and so that's what we have to be uh, thankful for. That's what we have to look forward to. And that's what we need from him. So with that, I will pray. God, we come before you and we confess that this is difficult, beyond our own strength to do. To have minds that are holy and pure and full of good things all the time feels impossible, inaccessible. But through your strength, we're told it is. 
And so we pray for that. We pray for that strength, that power, that feeling that strength will arise because you are a good, good Father who looks out for us and that we will see the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of the things you have given and the things you have taken and trust you that those were the right things to receive and the right things to lose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.